Well, good morning, Sailorville. And in accordance with the song we just uh, sang, may the word of God speak to us today. Amen. You know, Jesus said, he who is of God hears God's words. And so with that in mind, I would invite you to find Genesis chapter 9 as we continue in our series in the beginning and pick it up right where we left off. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 8. And this is the noetic covenant, the covenant between God and Noah and really to us as well. So beginning in verse 8, here's what it says. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow or rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow or the rainbow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature creature of all flesh and the water shall never again come become a flood to destroy all flesh when the bow or rainbow is in the clouds I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth God said to Noah this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. He doesn't change his mind once he has set his affection upon you. Aren't you glad? That's because salvation, spoiler alert, is not dependent upon you. It is not conditioned on your actions or mine. Back in olden times, covenants, which were common, were made between two men, and both men were actively involved in the covenant. So, you know, you'd have two guys making the covenant. They might cut an animal and... uh, you know, be, you know, and split it apart, and they would hold hands and walk between those bloody parts as if to say we're both actively involved in this covenant, okay? And we'll come back to that. The noetic covenant, like the new covenant that Jesus instituted, while, listen to this, while involving both God and man, has only one active worker in it. God. It's hard for me to convey the glory of what I just told you. But by keeping our dirty hands out of it, thank you, Jesus, God assures by the perfection 
and the power of his very nature, the very promise of his covenant. Now, the post-flood story introduces us to this noetic covenant, and along with it, terms we've taken for granted that are intended to help us relate, literally relate to God. Okay? The Bible, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> describes God in his essence, okay, as infinite and virtually indescribable. Can't describe him. Remember uh, Moses uh, kind of getting a little chummy with God. They've gotten to know each other so well. He's walking with God. And one day in Exodus 33, Moses says, Lord, would you just show me your glory? You remember that? And God says, Moses, do you realize what you're asking? You, you can't see my glory and live to tell about it. I got an idea. I'll show you my back. Have you ever tried to identify somebody by looking at their back? I, at Vacation Bible School just last week, I did that. I saw somebody. I figured who it was. I walk up. It wasn't the person I thought it was. It's kind of difficult to do that. Romans chapter 11 says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. The psalmist said, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is what? It's unsearchable. You can't search for it. It's impassable, so to speak. So how does this infinite and indescribable God, how does this infinite and indescribable God actually describe himself to finite men? Well, in the early answer was through figures of speech. Theologians call these things anthropomorphic and anthropathetic terms. You say, anthro what? Don't worry about remembering those things. I'll throw them up there in a moment. But they're, they're going to help us understand God. Actually, a couple of those expressions are used in verses 15 and 16. Here they are. One of them is, I will remember. And here's another one. I will see. And actually, we've already run into one of these terms back in chapter 8, where after Noah comes out of the ark, uh, you know, you know, brings an, all, an offering, the Bible says God smells it. Okay, these are, these are anthropomorphic, anthropathetic terms. I'll explain those here in a moment. In fact, let me just get right at it. In anth anthropomorphism, the word anthropos means human, and to morph means to form, okay? So human form. And anthropomorphism is ascribing human form to God. We do it all the time. The Bible does it. In fact, the Bible, I just referred to one, refers to God's back, his face, his mouth, his lips, his ears, his eyes, his hand, his finger. Now, Jesus told us God is spirit. Remember that? John 4, 24. And they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in what? So we don't literally picture God as possessing body parts, or do we? 
You know, I told you a few weeks ago about how a brother came to me recently and said, Pastor, when you worship the Lord, how do you envision him? And remember, I said, I don't, because that would be idolatry. Trying to envision God is idolatrous. I worship him for all of his greatness, his character, and all of his worth. So here's another term, not as familiar, but you'll, you, you'll understand it just by the mention, zoomorphism. Uh, the word zoo sounds like an animal thing, right? Yeah, indeed, a zoomorphic term is using body parts of an animal in order to describe something about God. And again, the Bible does that. The Bible calls God a lion, calls him a lamb, dove. And the one we're really familiar with is, is the Bible uses the reference to his wings, right? Now, unless you're a cultic Native American, you don't literally picture God as a bird, right? We don't do that. Here's another term. This is the one I really want to bear down on, the, the, the idea, not that you know the term so much, but the, but the anthropopathism or anthropathetic term, okay? An anthropathetic term is to, listen, anthropos means human, and the the term pathetic or pathos is we get our word feeling, emotion. So an anthropathetic term is a term where we ascribe emotions to God. And again, the Bible does this in ways that sort of, sort of throw us off we, because it's the only way we can relate to God is by our own emotions. So when the Bible speaks of God's jealousy, we go, whoa, God can be jealous? Or hatred, God hates Anger, God gets angry, pleasure, and the one we looked at a couple weeks ago, regret, and then today, remembering. These are all anthropathetic terms of God. <clears throat> and it's these, it's these anthropathetic expressions, that is the, the, the passions, human passions of God that trip us up. I would argue that these types of figures of speech tend to trip up believers more than the other figures of speech. And let me explain. While some of us struggle with the fact that God doesn't have a body, most of us who know God, who have accepted Christ, and we understand the Bible, we, we, we can accept the fact that he doesn't, he's, he's beyond body. He's, a, he's spirit, as Jesus said. And we don't literally think of God possessing wings, right? When we read Psalm 17 and Psalm 91, he spreads his wings over us. Or do you? Because you shouldn't. And yet when it comes to God's feelings, God's experiences, and all we have are, is our own experiences and our own feelings to compare them to, watch this, we, we often end up developing a caricature of God in our minds. You know what a caricature is? That's, a, that's like the mirror in the circus. You walk up to the mirror, the wavy mirror, and you're either super long or you're super squishy. Either way, it's, not, it's a distorted reality, right? And some of us have distorted realities of God. When we read words like God regretted or God remembered, and, so, and because the only thing you have is your own human experience, you, you assign that to God. And that's wrong-headed thinking. Promise University, that's what we're titling this message, is where you go to think more deeply about God. 
in order so that we don't form these caricatures in our minds. Remember A.W. Tozer's opening words to his great little booklet, The Knowledge of the Holy? His opening words are, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's a true statement. That's why we got to have right thoughts about God. By the way, that's the word orthodox. That's, that's the literal meaning of the word orthodox. It means right thinking. That's all it means, okay? And that's what we're trying to do. So when God says, when the Bible says, and God says, I'm going to put this rainbow out there, and I'm going, to, I'm going to remember. Are we to think that God's like the old man upstairs that needs a rainbow every once in a while? Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad I, I, I shouldn't be destroying these people. Of course, that's ridiculous. Rather, it is God's way of telling us the rainbow will be an eternal sign to remind us that God keeps his promises. All right, so God does that. And God's promises to Noah here, uh, and we're going to look at those here, and there, there, there are several elements, aspects to these promises that are the same when it comes to God's new covenant promises to you and I. So this becomes very practical, very worshipful. There's the first one. God's promises to Noah were unconditional. What he says, if you notice in the text, he says, I will. Notice he says, I will. He doesn't say, I will if you do. Nothing like that. That's an, it's an unconditional promise. He says, I will. Not if you will, I will. That's conditional. If you go to the book of Leviticus and you have the unpacking of the law, there's a lot of conditional promises. If you do this, I'm going to bring rain on your land. If you do this, your crops are going to be this and that. That's conditional. But not here. God lays no conditions down. This is what he's going to do. I'm, I'm promising I'm never going to destroy the earth. There's no condition here. I'm just going to do it. And likewise, listen, God saves his chosen ones purely on the basis of his love. Not on our works or even our faith. If you thought your faith, it's not your faith in and of itself that saves you. God actually gives us our faith. So when you start thinking your salvation has something to do with you, you've just lowered God and raised yourself up. That's a bad thing. The covenant that God had with Noah was unconditional, as is his covenant with us. Let me continue to unpack this. It was not just unconditional, it was unilateral. That's a big word. Unilateral. What does that mean? Well, see, while this covenant was between God and man, God is the only one acting. That makes it unilateral, and by the way, very comforting when it comes to our salvation. God is acting by himself. When, two na- when a nation goes to war with another nation and doesn't get other nations to help them, we say they're acting unilaterally, without any help. Now, as I said, covenants back in Bible times were common, and usually they were a two-party thing, both coming together, talking together, agreeing together, and surmising the stipulations together what the covenant would be. Then they'd cut up the animal, they'd literally hold hands, and they'd walk right through those animal parts as if to say, if you don't, you know, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, may you be like this animal. Pretty serious stuff, wouldn't you say? But not this one. This is a uni- unilateral covenant. While, and while I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, 
Um, remember, that we're going we're gonna to get to the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 15. If you recall, that's where Abraham, God's going to do a covenant with Abraham. He cuts a whole bunch of animal parts up, puts them, you know, spreads them. There's blood everywhere. And this sort of amplifies the enormity of the covenant. And Abraham's fully expecting God to come down, take his hand. They're going to walk through those parts together because he's got to keep his end of the bargain. God's got to keep his end of the bargain. And there they go through it. That doesn't happen. Instead, Abraham is put into a deep sleep, if you remember, right? He sleeps and he envisions God alone walking through those parts. What's that all about? It's a unilateral covenant. The idea is that we get to participate, but God's the only one acting. And I like that because if it's up to me, if I got to cooperate with God, I fail every time. I never know if I'm saved. I love the fact that in the New Testament, when the writer of Hebrews is talking about that covenant that Abraham, God made with Abraham, I just love this line. Look at it. It's chapter 6, verse 13. Here's what it says. It says, when God made a covenant, a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Well, that's what he was doing when he went through those animal parts by himself. Listen. Our salvation is unilateral. While we get to enjoy eternal life, we don't get to earn it. Jesus didn't say, come with me and we'll do this thing together. No, we're not saved by God doing his part and you doing your part. It's not cooperative. It's unilateral. I remember when my nephew interned in this church many years ago, uh, he had a great illustration. He, he, his son was petrified of the water. They were in a lake somewhere, and he dropped his son. As his son went in the water, he just clanged to his dad. I mean, arms around the neck, you know, wrapping his legs around, just like just almost just asphyxiating his dad, you know. And it's like, it's like Nathan said, there was no stinking way I was ever going to let go of him. But he was hanging on to me like I might. I think that's the way it is sometimes with us. We, we cling to God, but, we, but in reality, he's holding us. He's not letting us go. He's the one who makes this covenant. It's not a divine cooperation here. And that's what makes salvation so comforting, so exalting when I realize it's all of God. It's all of God. It's also universal. The Noetic covenant was universal. This is pretty interesting, at least it was to me. If you remember reading it, verses 8 and following, he doesn't say, he goes, I'm going to establish my covenant with you and your offspring and every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, every beast of the earth. They're all in on this covenant. I don't know of any other promises in the Bible to animals except for this one right here. This is it. Now, animal rights activists fail to see the distinction between man and animals. However, that does not mean that we should care less for animals. Amen? Are you ready for this? God loves all his creation, including the animal world. Now, granted, it's not the redemptive, agape, Calvary, dying for our sins kind of love. But it's a love just the same. The problem with radical animal rights activists is their inability to distinguish, as God does, between man and beast. The, watch this. The animal world was created 
by God for men. To use, to enjoy. Why else would you have, you know, a dog? And to consume. Use, enjoy, consume. That's it. But let me add something else here that might surprise you a little bit and give you pause, perhaps, the next time you are tempted to do violence to an animal. And this is from a guy who likes to hunt, okay? Are you ready for this? The animal world actually worships. Did you know that? They do. Now, again, not as we would worship, but they actually do worship. Psalm 48, 148, you can go there, but we'll put it up there for you real quick. I'm going to read the psalm, and as you get caught up in all of the, the anthem here, don't miss where I'm going, okay? Praise the Lord, that's the Hebrew, hallelujah, okay? And he repeats it re- repeatedly. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all his host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. He commanded them. They were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree. It shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire, hail, snow, mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Twelve times in that psalm, praise him, praise him, praise him. And you see in verse 2, you got angels. They, of course, angels, amen. They're worshiping God. They're covering their, with their wings, their feet. And all. We get that. How about kings, all people, princes, rulers of earth, young men, maidens, old men, children? That's in verses. Of course. Of, those are human beings. Of course. But did you notice the inclusion of even inanimate objects? Now, we're not pantheists here, okay? But what's the deal here? With sun, moon, stars, trees, fire, hail, snow, mist, mountains, hills, along with sea creatures, beasts, livestock, creeping things, and flying birds. What's that all about? All of these things are commanded to praise the Lord. Okay, are you ready for this? All creation worships all creation worships and praises god watch this by functioning in the capacity for which they were created that's all that's saying that's all it's saying the key phrase in this whole passage is verse 8 fulfilling his word there you go that's what they're doing i mean if you think about it when you ladies when you make a brand new meal from scratch or you design an outfit, okay, for yourself or your kids or your grandkids, whatever it may be. Guys, you build a cabinet, design a new part, assemble an old car, build a new table, and a hundred other things. 
Do they not bring great joy to their creators when they function for the purpose by which they were made? Of course they do. Well, so do animals. And that's how they worship. More importantly, so do we. And we, we humans, are the only ones in God's creation having sinned that have the capacity and the ability and indeed the inclination to defy the very intentions of God for our lives. And that's what some of you are doing right now. You were created to honor, to worship, and obey the living God, but you're fighting against it because of your sin. And we're the only ones who can do that. But here's the deal. It's a universal. This this promise was universal. It, It incorporated everybody on the planet. God's salvation promise is universal. For God so loved the the world. I remember uh, when I was in Bible college, I had Dr. Harry Gray. Anybody remember Dr. Gray? He's with the Lord now. I love that guy. Um, because he, you know, he was, um, he was, we were in a theology class, and we were talking about election and predestination, and we were going back and forth. The students were fighting. We almost had a big fight right there in the class. Going back and forth, arguing over all of this. And Dr. Gray just sat there and let it go. And finally, he just... When, when, you know, we were just exhausted from fighting, he just spoke up. I'll never forget what he said. He said, gentlemen, no matter, no matter where you land on this issue, may you never get to a place where you can't open up the Bible. And he opened up his Bible, and he said, and say these words, and in the most reverent way I've ever heard it quoted, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'm telling you what, my heart was on fire that day for gratitude to God that no matter where somebody lands on some of these, these huge theological issues, you never quit preaching the universal gospel. Amen? Never quit doing that. And then this promise is unending. Verse 16 says it's an everlasting covenant. I love it. And God says, here's a sign. I'm going to put my bow in the sky. You saw that, right? Or a rainbow. It could be translated. There's an old interpretation, by the way, out there that refers to this, this bow as God's, as God's warrior bow. You know, that he took his, his bow, he shot an arrow at the earth, that, that being the flood, destroyed the earth. And now God would remind himself to never do that again by putting his bow in the sky. And, of course, if you look at the bow, the bow is... Bow is upside down. It's, it's shooting upward, not downward. Kind of cool. Think about it. I'm not quite sure that's exactly what he's trying to implicate here, but I got thinking about rainbows because many of you have heard me share my story when, when my first wife passed away and uh, the funeral was four days later, July 19th, 1995. And I walked outside, walked to the end of the driveway, and uh, I just was... A mess, and I had to get away from my kids. I didn't want, and I was just, I was just a mess. And I went to the end of the driveway. I looked up in the sky, and I said, "God, I know that Nina is with you, but would you just confirm that to me?" Now it was a weak moment for me to say that. I really half thought he was going to paint her name in the sky. I'm not kidding you. He didn't. 
I got through the day, funeral occurs, everything happens, and everybody finally leaves late in the day, just myself and my brother and his family, and all of a sudden this fast-moving storm goes through, and the phone rings, my neighbor calls. People are, later people would send pictures from different angles of this. My neighbor says, Pat, you gotta go out and see. This is the most unbelievable thing. I know, you, I know this is a heavy day, but you gotta, you've gotta catch a glimpse of this. I walked out. And in the exact location, not a little to the left, not a little to the right, in the exact location was the most powerful double rainbow I'd ever laid eyes on. Now, do you think God gave me that rainbow? Just go like this. He did. He sort of condescended, you know, to my weakness. And what does the rainbow from this passage tell us? It's the promise of the noetic covenant that I'll never destroy the earth by a flood again. But that rainbow to me just said, all I heard was promise. And the promise was to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I didn't trust my wife was in heaven because they saw a rainbow, but because of the promise that it represents. The promise of his word, right? And so God says here in verse 16, I will see it. That's an anthropomorphic expression using the I now, I'll see it. So, and again, I mean, in the days to come, people would send me pictures of that rainbow from other angles, other, the other side of the rainbow. And the next time you see a rainbow, the next time you see a rainbow, remember, as you look up, God looks down, and he remembers his eternal covenant with us through Noah. Earlier, I asked the question, how does this infinite, indescribable God describe himself to us, to finite men? And remember, I said the early answer was through figures of speech that we've talked about. But God knew that wouldn't be enough. So the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, became like us, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth, which was a very nice thing for God to do, to send His Son to be like us without sin. He is, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, the very imprint of God. So that later on, when his disciples would say, hey, show us the Father, that'll be enough. Jesus said, look, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, rather, what? You've seen the Father. And so this is where it all ends, with the eternal covenant of salvation. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will receive eternal life. And because God's nature is, is, is immutable, he never changes, he won't change his mind about you, which is wonderful, isn't it? It's all of God, but you must believe it. You say, that, that sounds like a condition to me. All it is is you responding to God. He's done it all. You just say, God, I believe you. I believe 
that you sent Jesus for me, died for me, rose again for me. I, I, you have set my heart on fire. I'm convicted of my sin. I don't want the external Jesus. I want the internal Jesus. I want to receive him as my Savior. And that act of faith, which God himself causes in your heart, will change you forever if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you. Thank you for the story of Noah, the flood, your wrath meted out on this world, and then your love poured out upon Noah and his family and upon this earth with a promise to never do such a thing again and then giving us a much greater promise through your son Jesus, even showing us what you are like through the perfections of your son. God, I pray for people in this room right now. If, if, if your heart is on fire, that is, and you know what I mean, you're just feeling convicted, you're feeling like this is something you desperately need. You are a sinner, you are lost. And if the Spirit of God has touched you and shown you that this is true, then just respond and say, I believe with all of your heart, you are a sinner, you're lost, Christ died for you, Christ rose again for you, receive him right now you'll have everlasting life. And may those who know you, Lord, be edified in their most holy faith today, worshiping you truly in spirit and truth, not creating caricatures of you in our minds, but worshiping the one true God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.